0: Welcome to From the Ground Up, a podcast about small business funding, entrepreneurship, and current events that influence them. Powered by Tenant Financial Group.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of From the Ground Up. Our goal from the very start of this podcast, well, our roots, you might say, pun intended, is to educate our audience about various topics. We've covered all sorts of topics to date inside the scope of things that might be defined as business-related. Today, we're gonna step outside that a little bit, I think, David, and do something a little bit more fun and dynamic and try and raise the bar a little bit with our special guest.
2: Yeah, absolutely. To recap, as we look back, you know, we've now, we're well over a year into the show. We've had some really fun guests and some really neat conversations. It's been a really interesting ride. And it's been something that has opened my eyes up to some folks in the industry that have been really insightful to talk to. And I think today you guys are going to really appreciate the guests that we have on. This is actually someone, it's funny, you might say they wrote the book on franchising. We'd like to introduce you to Michael's side. Welcome to From the Ground Up, Michael.
0: Thanks guys, it's actually good to be with you. Hey Michael, for uh,
1: the one or two people inside of franchising that might not know who you are and what you do, huh. <laughs> can you give us a little insight?
0: Yeah, MSA is simply a an advisory firm to a lot of franchisors. Some are very, very small, just emerging brands. Some of them are Fortune 10. We are strategists and tacticians. So for people that want to enter franchising, we design and develop franchise systems. For folks that are domestic and international, large franchisors, we solve problems or we create opportunities or we're a sounding board. For some of our larger clients, they just want me to say, what the hell are you thinking? It depends upon what's going on, but We do a bunch of tactical things. We uh, have a very large staff dealing in manuals and training programs. We develop strategies for expansion. Unfortunately, we do a bunch of litigation support, which is a booming industry right now. We do private equity work. So it's a broad practice with a talented group of people behind it.
2: Amazing stuff. Let's go back a little bit and talk about just how many books have you written on franchising, Michael?
0: I've written two books. The first one was Old Friend and Client with Dave Thomas. We wrote Franchising for Dummies, which became the largest selling book. And it scares me walking into universities. And seeing that it's a textbook because a dummy's book should not be a textbook. Yeah. But it is.
2: Now you when you say Dave Thomas, that's the Dave Thomas of Wendy's fame. Is that right?
0: That is Dave Thomas of Wendy's Fame, a guy I miss. Yeah. One of the most brilliant natural business people that yeah. lived, a really good, respectful brand leader that got it. Hmm. Probably the biggest funeral I've ever seen. His franchisee showed up and wept. Mm. This was a good guy. Lots of Dave stories, not for now, but guy I miss. The second book, it's tough to be the co-author with a dead guy, even though I love him. So we wrote the second book, Franchise Management, probably 18 months ago, two years ago. (laughs) Similar theme, much more updated. It has a web attachment to it, which has, I think the web is probably has a lot of information that people don't recognize is in there. And on top of that, I probably have, you know, 500 articles published and presentations and domestically and overseas. So I used to write a lot more and now I'm pushing it off to some of the staff to write, but I I still keep my hand in it.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. Rewind the clock a little bit, Michael. I got started in this business. I was a stockbroker that just kind of fell into the industry somewhat based on the frustration of clients that I was dealing with that were buying franchises at the time. And they were struggling so much with financing, which is really what led to the creation of Fran Fund at the time. How did you get started in the industry and who were some of your mentors?
0: (laughs) I got into franchising in an odd way. I started life at the advice of my uncle and my father as a CPA probably the worst profession ever invented. Nobody in that profession had a personality. And I was just going crazy. I was young. I started college short of my 16th birthday. So I was a young kid at the time. One of my clients was one of the major British fine art auction houses. We did a lot of management consulting and auditing and typical accounting stuff. They offered me a position as chief operating officer of a British fine art auction house, third largest in the world. I leaped at it, knew nothing about the industry, but I had to get away from accounting. And then one day, a friend of mine who was a headhunter said to me, can you act as a shill and I said to him, for what? He said, we got this client. we trying to find a senior guy for them. We can't find one. Could you go out there and act like you care? So I flew out to California. I had no interest other than getting you know, a good meal out there for a weekend. Fell in love with this company. Came back, told my wife we're moving to San Francisco. And she thought I was out of my mind. And for the first year of that, working with that company, she stayed in New York and I traveled from New York to San Francisco. That's how I got in. I backdoored in. I'd, I'd had experience in franchising back in the consulting days, but I didn't know that these companies were franchisors. I just thought there were restaurants and hotels. So that's how I got into it. It was not the typical, I want to be in franchising.
2: Mm -hmm. now you mentioned dave thomas being a personal friend obviously that means you worked with the wendy's franchise what are some of the other brands that our listeners might recognize not to name drop just to give you some credibility on on folks that you've worked with over the years
0: yeah god there's so many firehouse subs mcdonald's burger king you name the hotel we've been there uh for a while we were chocolate people so you got nestle's hersey's and godiva Mm -hmm. Intel, DuPont, Exxon, eBay. there's a lot of brands, massage Envy, hand and stone. After all this time, we've there's not a lot of brands that we haven't worked with either in strategy or litigation or tactical approaches. And I got to tell you, a lot of it comes from you know some of the folks that I met along the way when I first got in. This is an amazing industry. Mm-hmm. I know it's not an industry. Let's use it shorthand. But you got guys that spend time with young guys coming into franchising. Bill Rosenberg would sit with you to 3 o'clock in the morning. Bill Rosenberg from Duncan, Sid Feltenstein, who is the smartest man ever in franchising. I love him. Fred DeLuca, who you grew a great company and you learn what not to do sometimes. I don't know if you know the name Joe Francis Mm -hmm. from The Barbers. One of the sweetest men I've ever met. Unfortunately, went through bouts of cancer. Uh, Bud Hatfield spent- Nobody well. Yeah, I mean, Bud used to sit with you, and he wouldn't mentor you as much as pull out of you ethics. Mm-hmm. He'd throw things at you, and you'd sit there, and he would grab onto things and tell you where to go. Uh, Admiral Bernie Browning, one of the great guys in franchising, GBS franchise system, loved him. I also got fortunate, one of my very first partners was Ray Kroc's first director of marketing. Wow. So I didn't know Ray, but all these guys that did know Ray, I mean, sitting around and listening to Ray's stories was just phenomenal and you learned a lot. I mean, McDonald's is, because of the way they manage, because of the way they communicate, because of the way they innovate, is just a remarkable company. So listening how they got there and why they're different is something I learned along the way. And, and obviously meeting franchisees, probably learned more about operations from franchisees who told me I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Absolutely. It's even back in the days of the hair care industry, sitting around with a bunch of stylists and OK, they're 18-year-old kids. And they've got a ninth grade education. Yep. You're supposed to just walk in, wave at them, and get the hell out of town. And learning about customer service and communications
2: mm-hmm.
0: from beauty salon stylists or folks, it's just a matter of can you listen? I can't tell you who the best mentor was, but I can tell you that there are a hell of a lot of them. And that's one of the <laughs> things about franchising. It's filled with mentors that just want to talk to you.
1: Yeah, that's for darn sure. I really can echo that. I've experienced a bunch of it to date. So I can certainly uh, relate to that. What's the most common question? You know, a lot's changed since a year ago. Maybe a two-part question for you. What's the most common question you get regarding franchise consulting space or someone that wants to begin franchising? And, and how's that changed maybe since uh, a year ago?
0: I don't know if it's changed that much. The first question that everybody asks nobody ever asked you is my business franchisable they've been told that they're going to be the next mcdonald's or the That's next right. subway yeah. everybody comes to us and says i spoke to joe blow and he's excited about my business he gets you sad because joe Blow is excited about any business he can get so the first question is how many can i sell and i said to him, i don't know you know it depends on what we're dealing with and what your brand positioning is and a thousand and one different things And when you tell them that they're going to, not only are they going to grow slowly in the first year, they should grow slowly in the first year and two years and three years. And no, they can't go from New York to California and stay alive. They got to be regional and grow. And you tell them the Bill Rosenberg stories about how Duncan Brands grew. They get depressed that they're not going to have a thousand locations. A guy told me I'm going to have a thousand locations. That's always the first question. Yeah. Then the second question is, how long is it going to take? And well, it's going to take about six months until you're selling franchises or offering franchises. And they say, why isn't it take so long? I mean, they told me the legal documents could be done in two weeks. And I said, Yeah, that may be true, and it's not, not by quality lawyers, but it takes us six weeks just to build a strategy. This is not like going to some other documents and copy it, which is one of the reasons you have such a high failure rate of franchisors in this industry, the preponderance of these franchise packaging firms. Those are the typical questions. People are surprised that it's not cheap. People are surprised that no one ever told them that it's, even after they offer franchise, it's going to take about 120 days to close a deal. And even after they close a deal, it's going to take another 210 to 280 days to get a location open. And wow, they're going to get a royalty check of $9 in a year. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the problem, you know, in answering the questions is you're often knocking down somebody else's sales pitch. And thankfully, we're, you know, at a point in our practice, because we do dominate our sector, that I can't hurt them because it's going to hurt my brand. And MSA Worldwide originally started as Michael's side and associate. So I kind of just don't want to bastardize my own name. My father might get upset. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Too funny. What
1: has changed? I think a lot of the business functions that you described, I, th- I think that's true. A lot of that has remained the same. But what has changed since a year ago? Anything?
0: Yeah, we're busier than we've ever been. We're counter cyclical. When stuff bad happens, people turn to us. And I feel bad, but that's good for us, you know, where the next car comes from. Litigation is higher than it's ever been before. There's a lot of emerging franchise systems that were packaged that won't or didn't survive. I think the biggest thing that no one's talking about is everybody talks about the number of locations that close. And I look at the number of brands that don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. There's been an over-reliance, no disrespect to brokers. They serve a good purpose. But there's been an over-reliance on uh, brokers, and the broker's fees have gone up. So a lot of these new franchisors get underwater very quickly. You're seeing a lot of locations that had uh, a lot of brands that had undercapitalized or not well-performing single-unit franchisees. Those brands, the multi-unit franchisees, which make up the preponderance of the industry, they're rolling up a lot of single units, so multi-units growing, a lot of private equity. A lot of these brands have great concepts, but they're not well-capitalized. They're poorly managed. Their franchise structure is packaged and off the shelf. So private equity is coming in and scooping up brands, and you're seeing you know, the real growth of the platform companies. That's a lot what's going on as far as that. The consumer has changed. We have clients in the fitness industry where we've been working with them for probably two years on, you know, what are you going to do about Peloton? But we did that when we were looking at companies that were back in the video rental days. I mean, what are you going to do about Comcast or whoever was there putting 500 channels in my house? One of the things that we're known about is looking into the future and where's the brand going to change. Amazon has done a, a huge impact. Peloton has done a huge impact and the wall and all of those. So fitness is going to have some issues. The QSR industry loves, I mean, don't tell anybody about it, but QSR industry loves COVID. The only thing they want to figure out now is how do they get less space? They don't need those big buildings big anymore. Rooms, right. The right. amount of drive-throughs gone through. Business travelers have changed. I mean, we were talking before we got on the air about, you know, 2019, I'm 176 nights just in a Marriott-branded hotel. And now business is up, and I'm having conversations all the time with three or four clients in the same day videoed.
1: Yeah. Michael, I love what you said about what's changing in the future. People are always asking you, you know, rub your crystal ball and tell me what things look like in 36 months or, or 48 months or whatever. One of the things, and I want to capture your thoughts on this trend that I'm hearing about, And maybe you're seeing and maybe you're behind it. I don't know. But this idea of virtual kitchens and the apps on people's phone, DoorDash and Grubhub and all of that. Yep. What is that? Do you know much about it? Can you tell people what's coming? That's something that in the age of COVID, we all sat instead of standing in line at the grocery store. We, you know, I know my family, we just logged on to Grubhub or whatever and ordered dinner many nights throughout the COVID era. So what about these virtual kitchens? What's going on there? And how does that look?
0: You know, it was probably in 2018, I got invited out to Des Moines, Iowa, not the entrepreneurial capital of the world. And sitting there was this guy that had convinced about 11 brands to let him cook their food to their specifications. And standing outside was a long line of Uber or somebody making deliveries. I've been trying to find that guy's name because I think he's the grandfather of these central kitchens. They are great. Yeah, they got some problems. So let me push the problems aside for a second. But when they operate well, they're in B-class, C-class locations. They're larger. Since they're staffed in a different way, they can get more experienced staff to deal with online today because of COVID and even before has burgeoned out. I'll give you one that I get a lot of pushback from folks on that say, you know, I'm out of my mind. When you look at the door dashes and you look at those, once the vaccine gets around, once we have herd immunity, once people are going out, those are not businesses I expect to be as dominant as they are today for two reasons. Number one, you don't need them. They'll still exist. Delivery will still exist. Look, Domino's proved that delivery works. They built it into their system. They do it in in a proper way. So nothing wrong with delivery. But you can't afford, given the margins in the restaurant industry, you can't afford to be giving that piece. And since we're about to go into a fairly high level of inflation, and everybody is going to be price sensitive as we start to move. And there's a lot of reasons we're going to get into inflation, uh, not just the $1.9 trillion we just spent. But we're going to have you know inflation on wage inflation and a whole bunch of other things offset by the lower cost of real estate, which we're seeing now because of COVID. But I don't see that the delivery, while they'll still exist, they'll not be dominant in Two years. it won't be necessary. People will adjust around them. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, the way that Domino's did it. And is still doing it phenomenally well. Look, look at the investment they've made in vehicles and and delivery and protocols. And, and that's gonna stay for a while. People like the idea of not having to say hello and thank you to the guy that delivered, just leave it at my front door and run away. I think we're all cavemen or cave women at some level. Mm-hmm. Talking about disruption,
2: right? And that's kind of the context of these discussions. You you mentioned Peloton, you mentioned DoorDash and some of these virtual kitchens. It really comes down to how the market is evolving and how disruption affects business concepts. How do you counsel your brands
0: to view disruption? I tell them to embrace it. And I always use one example. I bought both of my kids who live in Philadelphia, both of them are lawyers. I still call them kids. I bought them both as presents of Peloton somewhere around November of last of 2019. And then they convinced me to buy my own. And I said, yeah, I need another door. I need something else to hang my clothing on. <laughs> and all of a sudden they invited me to ride on Peloton. And here I am this morning. I got up and I did 20 miles on my Peloton. And every day I'm going to do between 10 to 20 miles on my Peloton. That's disruption. I mean, I used to get up at 4.30 in the morning to talk to my franchisees in Africa, but now I get up at 4.30 in the morning and I jump on my Peloton. That's not going to change, but it certainly changed a lot. Disruption is disruption has to be managed. Part of the problem with disruption is there's a lot of people running around who have no experience. The, uh, the faith popcorns of the world, the futurists that come up with this this nonsense of global change. Change happens around the brand. Change happens around by, again, you know, listening. It's this mentoring thing. Change happens with franchisees with good ideas and lousy ideas. You don't want to throw them out, they may have an, a kernel in there. You got to manage this disruption. Um, you also have to understand that there is incumbent inertia. I've been doing it this way for years. I'm the number one in the system. And oh, by the way, my name used to be Sears. You know, I'm not going to change. Or if I change, I'm going to do something stupid with my brand because everybody knew me for selling hard goods and tools and garbage cans. And then I'm going to be the face of fashion. No one's going to believe that a face of fashion unless it's back in the old catalog days. (laughs) But incumbent inertia is a mistake. Think of all the companies that existed in the pen industry before Bic came around and why none of them wanted to deal with that. Think of, you know, a Blockbuster Video and Wayne Heisinger, who was really smart because he sold before everything went to all hell in a handbasket. But 500 channels on TV, even without content back then, put them out. So. You got to look at changes. You got to evaluate what is a fad, and what is something that is substantial and going to stick around. And just because it's a fad, doesn't mean you don't get it in and out of it. Yeah. But disruption is great. It's it's the folks that log on to every rumor of disruption and say, "I'm going to do that." But there are some disruptions coming down in franchising with a fifteen dollar labor, with a joint employment. If you remember back in the Obama days, which seemed a long time ago, everybody was experimenting with robots that made hamburgers. They'll be back. I walked into a McDonald's in Vienna and ordered on this floor-to-ceiling kiosk. They had half the staff that we have here. I did that in Lyon, France. Great service. I can now localize and my product. I don't have to have that burger with one chip, I can have two chips. All of that technology is coming down and labor will suffer for it.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, for whatever it's worth, the McDonald's in Milan, Italy is exactly the same way. I was just there so it was amazing. It, and the technology over there was was amazing. It's not the same thing that you would see in a McDonald's in in Fort Worth, Texas.
0: Yeah, if this goes out to Belgium, I apologize, well, I'm not going to now going to say if you want to have the worst product ever invented by McDonald's, go into their restaurants in Bruges and you get a pork burger. That is the foulest product I've ever put in my mouth. But it sells well. That's the joy of international. Just because it doesn't meet my taste doesn't mean the people in Bruges don't love it. And they sell a lot of it. So disruption is good. And international, by the way, because we become a much closer world, what takes place overseas gets to us and what happens to us gets overseas instantaneously. So trends aren't as broad as they used to be other than watching the streets of San Francisco in Africa and explaining to them in Kenya that that's not what we see today. There's a lag time in some countries, but generally speaking, we're a much smaller world and we innovate much quicker today.
2: Yeah, I also think wrapping up the disruption conversation in the context of the way a franchisee might view it versus a franchisor might view it is franchisors have a responsibility to look forward to that stuff. To Would you go as far as to say the franchise fees, the royalties are in part paying the franchisor to watch for disruption and
0: prepare the brand? No, because this will upset a lot of people. The initial franchise fee is for getting into the club. The royalties are for staying in the club. Everything that the franchise or provides after that is to protect their marks. I decouple the fees from the services because that's not what they're for. All franchising is a licensing fee. I'll tell you that this is where good management comes in and why franchising is doing so well because we now have Back in the days when I got into franchise, and there were a bunch of guys that used to flip hamburgers, had no education, and all of a sudden they were, you know, multinational companies. Innovation has to be managed. New ideas have to be managed. New ideas have to be tested and they have to be proven and there has to be a return on investment because we now have professional franchisees. So, the fact that we now sit down with people that want to test something, which everybody's saying, you got to do, you got to do, you got to do. Look, Dave Thomas did not want to do breakfast at McDonald's, and he was right not to do breakfast at McDonald's at the time, because Dave's whole thought was that they're going to come into my restaurant once in that day, and he was said, you know, maybe they'll come in once a week, but I make more money on lunch than I do on breakfast. Why do I want them to come in for breakfast? A lot of companies, when you start to see them put in the word and after their name, so it's Jay Higby's and sandwiches, it's because the original concept didn't work and they're appending something to it, but it's now a different day pod equipment. The other thing you have to know with a franchise or which is important for the franchisees, when the brand is testing new products or services, they generally come with a cost. There's an equipment cost, there's a labor cost, there's a redesign cost. There's a cost there, there's a cost of marketing it. You don't wanna confuse the hell out of the customer. So if you are in the quick service restaurant, understand that all of a sudden, if you make the customer wait 20 minutes for that phenomenal idea you have, that's not your customer. Maybe a good idea, but it ain't right for your brand. Return on investment is important not just for the franchise or and its supply chain, but it's important to the franchisee. And oh, by the way, the big secret of change in franchising, if you have a good relationship with your franchisees, if you communicate with them, if you build up a level of trust because you don't screw up too often, and when you do, you've done it in an open way, you can screw up in franchising and survive all of the time. Look at the crappy products that McDonald's has come out with over the years and their franchisees love them. I mean, does anybody remember McDonald's pizza? It was a great product. It just didn't fit through the drive-through window and you had to tilt it to the side. <laughs> I mean, I always laughed. I remember when the shaker salad came out of McDonald's. And if you yep. think about it, who bought the shaker salad? It was a woman. So now you put the salad dressing on top you give her a tube and you tell her to shake it in public. Now, <laughs> oh. that's not a pretty picture. When I first heard about it, I said, what are you guys, nuts? And yet everybody survived. Yeah. So if you have good communications, if the franchisees are allowed to talk and you listen, not that you agree with them all the time, but you talk and you listen, you can take products, bring them to market. And then the secret is we are not a single market in the United States. Uh, New York City is 34, New York City, the Isle of Manhattan. I can define 34 separate markets on that island. So a product that is a total bust in New York City might really go well in Des Moines, Iowa. People think of franchising as this identical from location to location God help us if we ever get back to those days. We are regional brands for every single one of our clients, whether it's service or product. We look at the regional differences and we embrace them. Although we want to have consistency in the market, we don't necessarily want to have consistency across the brand. And I'm not saying, you know, everything's radically different, but product and services are supposed to be different because the consumer is different and the only thing that is important about the brand is how the consumer views it and keep in mind a brand is not the name of the company or the product and services it's the experience that the consumer has we spend a lot of time in something today called retail theater retail theater is how do you compete as a brick and mortar against an online salesperson You do it extremely well, but you don't do retailing of the 1990s in the current year because you have to blend that retail theater. There has to be a reason you can grab the customer, hold on to them, and do something different than you did before. All that's part of the change that we see.
2: Yeah. Well, speaking of change, I I know Derek's got one more question, but I wanted to touch on one thing that you mentioned when we were preparing for the show. What is social franchising? Explain that to us.
0: Social franchising is a passion of mine. I got into it maybe 15, 20 years ago. It's the use of commercial franchising techniques and technology to deliver products and services to people at the base of the economic pyramid. So for instance, I'm part of a group. We have 176, maybe 190 medical clinics in Kenya and Rwanda We've served in excess of six million patients. We are the best thing in that market for what we produce. The difference between that franchise and a Subway or McDonald's is yeah, it's still an NGO, but it's measured differently than an NGO because we look at it from a consumer level. Why is the consumer coming? And keep in mind the difference is, and we do get royalties in some of them. But the consumer is coming because of the quality of the brand, just like anyone else. And when they have to spend a dollar, that's equivalent to somebody in, in a first world country spending $50. So I spend a lot of my happy time either consulting or being a management person. So we've developed birthing centers in Ghana, we've developed medical clinics in Kenya and Rwanda, we've done education programs education and daycare in some of the worst enclosed villages in the the world. I actually started a task force at the IFA. I'm now thankfully chairman emeritus, which means somebody else does the work and I get the credit. We have a task force at the IFA that mentors companies around the world on social franchising. Uh, The way that I got into Ohio State is that I was put onto a board and we're developing water wells in Tanzania there's 20 of them up now we actually have put wells in the ground and piped the water sometimes miles to a village we have put in a replicatable sustainable system that provides clear clean tested water it's the most engineering thing i've ever seen we have to have holding water for the dry seasons we have to have pressure pipes and unpressured pipes and it's kind of interesting but social franchising and I've been the leader in that industry for years now is a way in fact we're now about to pivot looking at the Native Americans I'm going out to meet the president of one of the tribes and a tribal council to start to look at social franchising within Native Americans or in other underserved parts of the country and it has some use I mean look if you ever been to New York City and you've been around the Apollo theater. Mm-hmm. That whole redevelopment there came out of social franchising. Yeah, it had Magic Johnson in it, and he's done a remarkable job, not in franchising, but you know, using his own money for movie theaters and, and forcing companies in. But the whole redevelopment of that came out of a project that we worked on years ago. It's gonna date me with manufacturers, Hanover Bank, the Ford Foundation and a bunch of other guys that said, hey, here's a market That's underserved. They're buying X number of shoes, but they're not buying it in the market. Wouldn't you like to put a shoe store there, an eyeglass store there or something? Social franchising is terrific. And last point I'll make on it. I was asked one time, can I beat the costs of delivering medicine? And they pointed out that the Clinton Foundation was curing malaria for $5.15. And being who I am, I said, sure, I can beat the Clintons. Hell, I'm a Reagan Republican. I can certainly beat the Clintons. That's not even a thought process. (laughs) I had no idea what the hell I was saying. I was just going to do it. We cure malaria today and make a profit at $1.75. Wow. And the reason for that is franchising and the focus on standards and the focus on supply chain and field support and all the other stuff that we all do every single day and don't think about it.
2: What? So you're telling me you can be a dyed-in-the-wool franchise fan, capitalist, but still have social and help with social issues? That's possible with this model?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm probably, you know, not me personally, but we've served 6 million people, and that was last year's number. And when you get a malaria crisis or a crisis in tuberculosis, that chain has probably saved 25% of the people that would have died. Yeah, we do a lot of it. I'm pushing now for it. I now have a new bug up my tail on diversity. Yeah, I'm a conservative Republican, but I have this really, my father was a union organizer. So somewhere in my genes (laughs) is this liberal thing. I love it. So it, it works kind of well.
2: Yeah, I think it's a demonstration of using good, solid practices that we've learned through commercial franchising and expanding them out through the means that franchises taught us. It's pretty cool stuff.
0: Franchising has no color, race, gender to it because we're all interested in green. But the thing I learned about it, if you go to an IFA convention, the best attended program, other than the general programs is the prayer breakfast. I'm one of the sponsors that I speak at frequently. You walk into that room and I'm not a religious guy, but you certainly get a sense in that room of the passion of franchising to do good, not just good economically, but to do good. Franchising gives back and a bunch of things. So we don't highlight enough in franchising of the good stuff that we do.
1: Well, that is really, really well said, and I completely agree with everything you just said. Well, I'd be a little remiss if I didn't quasi-selfishly ask you briefly about franchise recruitment. That happens to be a function of which uh, Tenant Financial Group engages on a daily basis as it relates to capitalizing uh, new franchisees. What's changed uh, with franchise recruitment as we've you know, endured COVID, and, and hopefully now we're coming out of it uh, the way it seems, but Talk to us about franchise recruitment specifically.
0: Franchise recruitment as everything else now has become more digitized, more Zoom. Communications that we used to do over the phone are now being done in a Zoom format. So you're not just talking to a prospect, you can do a show and tell. We're able now, instead of having that one discovery day or one decision day, we now can have a series of them, which... Let's the franchise, prospective franchisee see us, but it also lets us see them. And anybody who's done franchise sales, and we train on it a lot, knows that you want to, for a good franchisor, I'm not talking about the one that takes somebody with a, you know, who's breathing with a check, but for a good franchisor, they want to make sure the fit is there. They want to make sure that the person is not an entrepreneur, but is a formula entrepreneur, that's going to follow the system and make it better and not change it. So we're always giving them assignments to do, whether they're small or little, are they timely? How are they handling their own personal brand? So if I'm going on a screen, I can look into the background and see their house looks like, you know, it hasn't been cleaned in six months. I don't think that's changed. If you, I once had a sit down with Bill Rosenberg, which meant, you know, it was three in the morning and we were having brandy. And I, I asked the question to Bill, this is years and years and years ago. How do you tell if a franchisee is right for your system? And Bill said, I go to their house. And I said, why the hell would you go to their house? And he says, I want to see how their lawn is. I want to see whether they have what Bill used to say schmutz, which is an old Yiddish term for, you know, garbage around the house. I want to see how much schmutz they got around the house, because if they got a schmutz around the house and they know I'm coming to visit, why the hell would I want them anywhere near my brand? They're just going to screw it up. I think the interplay today of Zoom has made it, we have the ability to reach more prospective franchisees quicker. We get a lot more information from them. We can deliver to them a lot more information. Look, it's changed the way that we're supporting franchisees. It has done remarkable changes to how we're training franchisees and what we can do today. I mean, you don't need two weeks in a hotel. A lot of our clients today, we are We're doing, you know, at-home training, and then they're only coming in for a week instead of before they came in for two. Saves on hotels, saves on headquarters staff. It also makes sure that what we're saying to the prospective franchisee is accurate because they're just looking at a video which has been scripted, and the attorneys have had a chance to look at, so we said nothing stupid. So the electronic age, and that's going to stick no matter what because it's very effective where i think is going to change and the folks that are in the broker industry are not going to like this i think as we get back to a ready state no one can afford the broker fees that are out there today and survive you saw that with you know the bergerims of the world yeah selling that many franchises and going underwater and expecting your royalties to make it up it works for a well-funded company but it doesn't work for a brand that has 200 franchises and is basically waiting for the royalty checks to come in so they can make payroll. So there's gonna be some rebalancing and moving back in-house, but that's not bad. It's just, you know, Like we've had a phenomenal year because of COVID. The brokers have had a phenomenal year back in COVID. We'll figure out where where else our stuff comes from.
2: Well, Michael, it has been an absolute pleasure and wealth of knowledge, obviously, like we expected this show to be. We could probably sit here and keep talking for the next two hours. So for the sake of our listeners, we will uh, wrap this show up. But will you come back and talk with us again sometime?
0: at the fee you guys are paying me to do this you know you know absolutely you know a hot dog would have been nice a bowl of candy would have been nice a cup of coffee would have been nice yeah i'll come back
2: You got it. You got it. We'll figure that out in between now and then. Well, to our listeners, we want to, again, thank you so much for all the feedback that you give us. We appreciate you guys. We're excited about this podcast and we want to continue doing it. Your feedback really inspires us to keep it up. And
0: you guys do a good job. So that's-
2: that's Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everybody for joining From the Ground Up. Hope you have a great day.